He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
Uh, my name is Josh, and uh, it's such a privilege for me to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And um, I don't know about you, but this past weekend was a, it was a great time for a rest for our family. Um, I was kind of thinking about preaching this morning, and it's almost like going after two of your aces are pitching perfect game, and I'm up next. Um, I think Christ Central is blessed with great preachers, uh, Pastor Howard and Pastor Omari Hill, they're great preachers, and I was just so glad to be able to sit under their preaching this past weekend. Um, we've been attending Christ Central for past seven to eight weeks now. I think a lot of times people will come up to us and ask us what we're doing, and we'll say we're regular visitors, but uh, we've been just enjoying our time together here. Uh, I think there are a lot of great things that are happening here, and um, I, I know that there's a table talk that is happening. I was talking to one of my friends about uh, the table talk and what happened and how, how my wife attended and they're so jealous of what's happening here and they long for something like that in their churches so Christians, I think you're blessed with many many people that are willing to talk about difficult topics but also talk about what it means to be Christian in light of that um, it's been joy for us to visit and also be amongst you and I also realized that Christ Central has a lot of different people serving in different ways my son loves lights and being connected to different things, meaning the electronics. And one of the things that he loves is the sound booth. That's why we have been sitting by the sound booth. And Mr. Jason has been one of the, the joy of my son coming to church. Uh, we call this church Mr. Jason's Church, and we believe uh, that's what it is about. And my son loves it. And just want to say this church is not only about diversity and ethnicity and race, but also about gifts and talents that God brings to serve this church. I think that's what it means to be a church. Amen? Amen. Uh, to introduce myself a little bit, hopefully there's a picture up here, but I'm married to my wife, Lynn, and we have a very energetic boy, Seth. I don't know if it's up here or not, but hopefully the picture's up here. If it's not, it's fine. You'll get to meet us. Hopefully we get to meet you as well. And whenever we actually meet people, and you, hopefully you'll get to meet my wife as well, they'll meet me, they'll get to know me a little bit, and they'll be my wife, and they'll do a double take. And they'll look at me, and they'll look at my wife, and they'll say, how is this possible? Like, what, the have, what have you done in the past to bless you this much? Um, they'll often say, did you trick her into marrying you? Or, like, is she blinded by something? And she would all, we'll often say, like, what is going on? She is real, by the way. I'm not faking it. I'm not lying. She's real. I did not trick her into marrying me. And I always tell people, with men, it's impossible. With God, anything is possible. <laughs> and um, we're blessed to have a boy, and we, we, we're glad that we could join you. And I remember when we first got married, um, the wedding was one of the most anticipated moments of my life. In fact, we're poor grad students at a time, so we try to do everything on our own, DIY, for all the weddings. We made all the backdrop, all the invitation, all the wedding favors. Uh, but we did it all. And up, on top of all that, you know how the wedding goes, right? All the family drama that happens that week, all the craziness, the last-minute addition to the, the roster, to the reception that you never really anticipated, the people that you never met before showing up, saying, hey, congratulations, and I don't know who you are, but thank you for coming. It was one hectic week, to say the least. But the anticipation of that wedding day, as the bride walks down the aisle and you realize, thank you, thank you, Lord, what have I done to deserve this? But thank you for all that you're doing in my life. And I remember celebrating the joy of the wedding and all the hard work that went into that, all the celebration that went into that. And I remember 
being so joyful at that moment. But the next day, as I woke up, it was actually Monday morning, um, and I realized, what's next after this great celebration of a wedding? What happens the day after this wedding? And in fact, we know the marriage begins with the ceremony, but life continues on after the wedding date. And when it comes to walking with the Lord at the celebration of the Easter, that's the same thing with us, isn't it? This past weekend was a season of Easter promise of love of Christ, the sacrifice and the celebration of it all. And what a joy it was to be able to celebrate that. The Easter egg hunts, the, the songs and praise, the great preaching that we heard. We, we learned to wait for the Savior to rise again from the dead on the Sunday. And he does, and what a celebration that is. But what's for us the day after on Monday? We love the worship and the promises of God's empowering message for us. But we wake up in the Monday morning and we realize that our circumstances, circumstances are, are the same. In fact, we still have work to go to. Just because Christ rose again doesn't mean that you could skip out on work. Right? It would be nice, but no. In fact, our children still wake up 7 o'clock in the morning wanting breakfast, even after a long Sunday. We also realize there are pain People, close ones, are still sick after all. And there are more difficulties that come in light of this great promise of Easter. I think today's text in Acts 1, we see the disciples in a similar boat. It says in verse 3, he presented himself, Christ presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And disciples are getting excited by now, saying, okay, he rose again, let's do something about it, right? So they had come together, and verse 6, they asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're thinking, okay, now let's get to work, right? Let's get to work. You rose again. There's got to be power here. We've got to do something about this. And this is what Christ says to them. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you're wondering, all right, that's great. Power is good. Now we're going to do something about this. And this is what he says. Right? And this is what he does. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the clouds took him out of their sight. Can you imagine? They're like, Christ rose again. And we're like, all right, let's get to work, right? Kingdom of God is here. And he's like, all right, power is coming. I'll see you later. And this is what I, I love how the Bible is so real, right? In verse 10, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven, wondering what in the world is going on, right? And, um, as they were gazing into heaven, he went and behold, two men stood by them in the white robes. I don't know if I'll, I'll be freaking out by now. Like, what? <laughs> and they said to him, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. As Jesus ascends and returns to the Father, it may also be fitting for us to find ourselves in the similar situation as disciples, wondering what's next. How should we li live in light of this great resurrection Sunday? What does it mean for you the day after the Christ rose again? What does it mean for you to live in light of the promise of the resurrection Sunday? And I think we could look at the disciples, how they react afterwards 
to get a glimpse into how you and I ought to live in light of the Resurrection Sunday. First thing that we see the disciples do is they live in obedience to the Word of God. They live in obedience to the Word of God. The missionary to Egypt once told me that 95% of what God wants you to what what God wants you to do in your life is in the scripture already. 95% of what God really wants you to do this day is already in the Bible. The disciples, after Christ ascends to heaven, are gathered in the room, and they look into the scripture. They open up their Bibles, and guess what they look at? Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. In verse 16, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit speak beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. As Peter looked into the scriptures, and when he did, he began to see what he needed to do next. And what he's looking at is Old Testament book of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Basically, he talks about how Judas was prophetically was going to betray, and he experiences the judgment of God. And now, this place that Judas occupied must go to someone else. The first thing, listen carefully to this church, first thing the disciples do as Christ ascends to heaven, as thinking about how to become the witnesses to the rest of the world, is not to come up with this great strategy about building this kingdom. It's not about um, coming up with the programs, coming up with the flyers to send out. The first thing that they do as they look into the scripture is to answer this question of what do you do with the brokenness within our own community? Isn't it? The 12 disciples, they, they, they look at themselves, they realize one is missing. In fact, it's broken, right? Because Christ promised the kingdom of heaven will be built on this disciples and testimony of them all, but one is missing. And isn't that amazing? In order to reach the nations, to be a witness to the rest of the world, it's not about building programs, making things nice, but to look into your hearts, to your community with the word of God, and to restore what's broken first. And that's what the Word of God does, doesn't it? The Word of God shows us that sin is not the way it's supposed to be. The Word of God confronts our brokenness. The Word of God challenges our assumptions. And the Word of God exposes our deepest and darkest sins. And what you need to do the day after the Resurrection Sunday is to go into the Word of God to see the realities of your life and live in light of the truth that Christ has risen again. And that's why it's so important for us to read the Word of God. That's why it's so important for you and I to sit under a teaching of the Word of God. It is so important for us to live according to the Word of God. But what's more important than also listening to the Word of God preached is this. The disciples, once Peter unpacks the truth for them, what they do logically is put it in action. They obeyed. The word of God. Verse 21, it says, So one of the men who accompanied us during the, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among them, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And guess what it says in verse 23? And they put forward to Joseph the Bersavis, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And when they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two have chosen to take the place in this ministry, apostleship, for which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, man, I'm not chosen here, right? I'm like, there's two guys here, and it seems like a great position to be. I'm nominated, but after all, I'm not the one, right? What am I supposed to do, leave church and find something else? But nothing like that is said, isn't it? There's no division in the church. There's no disgruntled heart here. The foundation is formed. Everyone comes under the authority of the word, and community is marked by obedience. And I think that's what we need to remember. Not only what we ought to look into the word of God, listen to them, but the question is, do you want to obey it? Or are you obeying the word of God? In fact, a lot of times I will talk to people and they'll say, Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what God wants us to do. But that's not true. Most of the time, you know exactly what God wants you to do, right? You know you're not supposed to sin. You know you're supposed to be at church. You know you're supposed to love your neighbors. You know you're not supposed to lust. You know you're not supposed to be prideful. But the question is not, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The question is, do you want to obey it? Are you willing to obey what God says and to live according to Scripture? In fact, that is the biggest question that we often struggle with. Do I want to obey and surrender my life to the Lord and love God and love other people? Or do I want to live according to the way I want to live? And in fact, that's what we struggle with most of the time. And get this, church. The greatest movement the world has ever seen, the greatest explosion of a church, the greatest growth of a church begins with the simple obedience the day after. And I believe that's what God seeks with us, isn't it? The world celebrates big things, influential things that happens real quickly. But the Bible seeks small, simple obedience daily for a long periods of time. And in fact, that's what's celebrated in the word of the word of the Lord. And God seeks after simple obedience as the church grows into the next phase. And as I was studying this text, the question I also have was this. How is this Peter, right? We heard the sermon last week. Peter is the one that jumps before or acts before he thinks, right? He jumps into the water when he sees Christ. So how does Peter all of a sudden knows what to do? Well, how does he know to go back into the war the day after Christ ascends? And I think here Peter asked this question of, what would Jesus do, right? He's not here, so he's asking, what would Jesus do? And Peter, he remembers what Jesus would have done and what he did while he was with them. In fact, when Jesus was walking on earth as he was with the disciples, every day, right, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 17, I have come to abolish, um, do you think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophet. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, teaching moment, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Not only does Jesus always talk about fulfilling the word of God, accomplishing the word that was given to him, moving according to the conviction of the word, but he also obeys even to the point of going to his own death on the cross. So Peter watches his Savior walking in the word in obedience. 
but he also has a first-person experience on how the Word of God comes alive in his life, doesn't he? Matthew 26, 33 says, Peter answered him, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, the Word of God says, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter lives this out. And the experience of seeing God's Word come alive in his life leads to going back to the Word, living it out, and seeing what to do next. In other words, he experienced the power of the Resurrection Sunday coming alive. Now that leads him into living according to the power of the Resurrection Sunday. He's a believer that the Word of God is true. As I shared with you, my boy is four. He's a very young, uh, young boy, and one of my job as a father is to disciple him, to teach him what is good and what is bad. And one of the joys I have is to teach him what to eat. And uh, at, at four, they, they tend to be really picky about eating things. And one of the things I recently introduced, or actually more like my wife, was to introduce him to the life of bacon. So we realized that he needs to eat bacon in his life, not only eggs. He loves eggs, scrambled eggs. But my wife and I thought, okay, it is time. It is time now to introduce him to bacon. And uh, as a four-year-old, you tend to be a little hesitant about eating new food. And even if you think about bacon, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like crispy, brownish. It doesn't really look that appetizing. So what we had to do was to show him, hey, this is good stuff, right? Not only to show him that this is good stuff, uh, we ate it in front of him and smiled and celebrated. <laughs> and then we gave it to him and said, try it, son. You will like it. And guess what? It was so hesitant in the beginning. So skeptical. I'm like, I'm your father, trust me, right? So skeptical, but once he ate it, my gosh, the world opened up, right? <laughs> the places where he'd never been before, the things that he never realized before, he realized, this is it! And guess what now? Every breakfast, if we have eggs, we have to have bacon. Right. Every time, he must have bacon because he realizes that eggs and bacon go together, and that's what it means to believe in bacon. Isn't it? I don't think that's exactly what it is. I know, I got a point here. Um, church, I think that's what it is. If you really believe in the Word of God, right? If you really experience the power of the Word of God, that means you got to live it out, isn't it? We could celebrate all we want on Sunday. We could celebrate all we want on Easter Sunday and say, I believe in the power of the gospel. But if you really, really believe it, then you got to live it out. Just like my son who believes in the power of bacon. Church, if you're celebrating the Resurrection Sunday, that means we believe in the Monday of living in obedience to God's command in the Word of God. Second thing the disciples do, not only are they living in the Word of God, but they also pray and surrender to the King. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do that I shall spend first three hours in prayer. I got so much to do that I shall spend first three hours of my day in prayer. And this is exactly what we see disciples doing in this text, praying in surrender to the king. Verse 8, it says, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Doesn't that sound like a great, great, great commission? Doesn't that sound like a lot of work to be done? Go to the ends of the earth. And you guys only got 11 guys or 12 guys here, maybe 120 people, and you're going to reach the nations. How many people we have here? 
two, three hundred, right? We're thinking like, how are we going to reach entire Charlotte, right? Then we're gonna go out and do stuff, get to work. But guess what it says? When the disciples hear this, Acts chapter one, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And what were they doing when the Spirit of God comes upon them in chapter 2? Praying. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house when they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. What the disciples first do as they receive this great commission from the Lord is to gather to pray together. The question is, you wonder, whenever we receive this great command from the Lord, we were wondering, where are the strategists, right? Where are the visionaries here? Where, where, where are the plans, the great, great plans and programs that we're going to use to reach the rest of this nation or this world, right? We got so much to do. It almost seems like a momentum killer for you to sit there and close your eyes and to pray and say, God, do something about it. Why start with prayer and not with action? But church, I think this is what, how God works. Prayer, by definition, is one of the most helpless things that you can do in whatever circumstances you're going to be in. Many people could say, I can look into the Word of God and hope to gain some kind of wisdom and some kind of plans about what to do next. We love talking to our pastors, our leaders, shepherds, women shepherds, and say, I want to receive counsel, and we need that. We definitely need that, and that's more tangible in some sense. But most people will say, but Pastor Josh, prayer seems like you're just sitting there asking for something or asking for someone to come help. Or sometimes I feel like I'm just airing out my dirty laundry without really doing much. And sometimes you feel like I'm so powerless to do anything about it, and it seems like nothing's really happening as I sit there and close my eyes or open my eyes and just blabber on for a long time. How powerless it is to simply say, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I can't do it. I really can't. Help me. That's what prayer is all about. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says prayer is simply a medium through which we experience and connect with God. And not, you're not only connecting with God by saying, I can't do anything. You're connecting with God by saying, God, you got to do something about this. But if you also believe in the power of a resurrection Sunday, that means you realize that your prayer that you're lifting up is not merely babbling on. If you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, then you believe the prayer that you're praying up is lifted up to the God of heavens who is able to raise his son from the dead. If you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, then you know that your prayers matter. If you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, it doesn't matter who you are, how long your prayers are, how eloquent you sound. It matters because you pray in the risen Lord's name. And once again, what motivates the disciples to simply pray in light of the great task at hand? What would Jesus do, right? He prayed. The Son of God, God himself, often retreated and prayed before he acted, 
Yeah, he moved on to the next phase. Time and time again, he prayed. And the longest recorded prayer in the scripture, right before he goes to his death in John 17, he prayed and he lived it. And I like to venture to think the disciples were probably not 100% in accord with the spirit at all times when we prayed, right? After all, Jesus, the resurrected Savior, just left them. And I'm sure they're all torn, wondering what are they supposed to do next. They struggle with their heartaches, wondering, has God abandoned them? Tim Keller talks about the necessity of prayer when he says he had no choice but to discover prayer life when he realized he's going to go through cancer treatment, when his life was at the most stressful moment. He realized that prayer was discovered in his life and it was most helpless. As if to say, God, I give up. It's your turn to show up now. And that's what it means to pray. One of the biggest hindrances that we have in prayer is we wonder, does it really matter? Does God really hear me when I cry out to the Lord? We've been visiting the church. We've been attending the church. And as I share with you, we sit in the sound booth. But part of being in the sound booth is sitting in the bullpen of the church. I call it the bullpen because most of the families sit back there. And it's almost like you're waiting. You're waiting for your child to come back in or the light to show up, and you realize you got to go. It's like a bullpen pitcher. And something's up. you got to go. be ready to go. So I know a lot of families sitting back there. And before I go on, let me just say this about being a parent of a young child, and I'm with you. It's not easy, right? Sometimes we come to church, and my wife, and especially when he was young, we will come and we realize we will get like 1% or 5% what the pastor would say. And we wonder, is it worth it for us to wake him up dress them up, and come here and get five minutes of worship and go home. Is it worth it? Absolutely, church. If you can find Christ and community in your chaos of parenting, what model, what model of faith are you showing to your children? If you realize that Christ is so important, that 5% of your attention is so worth your time, what model of faith are you going to give to your children? Parents, I know it's not easy, you know. But, you know, every time I hang out with young parents, whenever we have this play, play date, it's the most funniest thing, isn't it? We let the kids play on the corner. We thank you, say thank you. Please go play, right? <laughs> and we, we sit here, and we now finally have this adult conversation about life with coffee, and we're like, oh, I could drink. Okay, they're taken care of. And all of a sudden, as you're playing, you hear this loud cry. One kid starts crying. And without fail, not every parent stands up. Do you notice that? When one child cries, nobody stands up. Only the father or the mother of the child stands up. And you're like, how? Like, how do you know this? And as they stand up, and they all look at one another and say, hey, I know what he wants. He's hungry where he's pooped, whatever it may be. And they know exactly whose child it is, what he needs. And it all sounds like, eh. And you're like, what is that? They don't even communicate. They don't even call out, but he knows exactly who he is and what they need. In church, if a fallen, struggling parent knows exactly who his own child is and knows exactly what he wants at all times, even without communicating properly, our Heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. Your groanings, inward, heart, He knows it all, isn't it? 
And that's what scripture reminds us in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Herein lies power of prayer. In our powerlessness, that's when Jesus stands. In our pain, Jesus reigns. In our brokenness, he speaks. Once again, if you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, how desperately will you cling on to praying on Resurrection Monday? Final thing that we see is not only do they live according to the word, not only do they pray in surrender to the king, but they stand together in a community in the spirit. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And that's exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. We see one of the greatest revivals and the greatest transformation the world has ever seen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as the fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in one other, uh, another tongue as the Spirit gave them utterance. The effects of the Pentecost were amazing. We read in Acts that many who received the Spirit were able to speak in multitude of the languages. And Peter stands and preaches a sermon and results in conviction and changes people's hearts of about 3,000. Some theologians would even argue and say Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was able to rescue more people, perhaps than the ministry of Christ. How does that happen? How does this great promise of Christ is fulfilled in the life of Peter, in the preaching of Peter and preaching of the disciples. How does this great promise of Easter bear fruit in our daily lives? How does God's promise of hope and deliverance bear fruit in our circumstances? What's the difference between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2? The presence of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit arrives and rests on the disciples, the disciples are given what is needed for them to fulfill their calling, to preach Christ to the ends of the earth, the tongue, the language, the power is given to the disciples. And when the Spirit of God arrives at this moment, Peter's mere words turn into power of testimony, powerful testimony of God's kingdom. And the question is, how do you and I get filled with the Spirit of God the day after Resurrection Sunday? How do we experience the filling of the Spirit of God? Now, I'm not going to talk about the different ways the Spirit works to fill or be filled, the full of the Spirit and all that in the Scripture. Um, and the Spirit of the Pentecost is a special moment and a one-time event that happens. But I think generally to be filled with the Spirit is also to say that you have the Spirit of God living in you, the joy of Christ living in you. And you experience the grace of God in your life. And that's why you're filled with the presence and the spirit of God. And how do you get to live like that? Chapter 2 comes before chapter 1. You're like, I know, Pastor. What, what is that, right? Chapter 2, meaning chapter 2, the experience of this amazing power of the spirit comes upon chapter 1. As disciples gather together in the word of God, as they're filled with the word of God in obedience, as they pray and surrender to the king, 
And they said, together in one community, the Spirit of God comes and rests upon them. Because these two means, the ways that God is going to pour out his grace upon God's people, along with the sacraments, is the word and the prayer. And we experience and we encounter the living God through the word as we obey and live it. And as we experience and encounter the living God through prayer in our surrender heart. It doesn't mean that we all got to be like Peter. Or you'll be experiencing the exact same power of the Pentecost. It's a historical moment, as I said. But as we pray and as we meditate in God's word, the promise that he will equip, empower you to do what God is calling you to do in your daily life. If you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, then you believe in the power of the word and prayer and his presence with you to live according to his ways. Furthermore, notice when the spirit of the Lord comes where the believers are standing together in a community. As they gather together, as they studied, as they meditated, as they apply the word in their community in obedience, the Spirit of God dwells upon this community. That means when the church gathers in prayer and surrender to the king, in humble submission, acknowledging their weakness, as the church gathers in listening to the word, in humble obedience to the command of the word. It matters. That means church, today matter. That means it's absolutely necessary that you be here. That means you showing up on Sunday, it's not just merely showing up to get what Pastor Howard is going to say on Sunday. It's not merely to come and get entertained by the music band. It's not merely to come so that my child will live according to moral ways. It's not that at all. In fact, today matters because you and I need this time. You and I need this time to listen to the word of God because we need it. We need to hear it. We need to be challenged by it. We need to be transformed by it if we say we believe in the resurrection Sunday. And you and I need to pray. And not only by myself in my room, but we need one another to pray. Let by our, our elders to pray for us so that you and I can be filled with the spirit of the Lord and to say, I surrender, Lord, I can't do it, but you can. If you believe in the power of Resurrection Sunday, then you need that prayer in your life. And that means you need to be here. That means every single one of you need to be here to reflect what it means to be a church. Do not ever substitute this great promise for mere soccer game. Do not ever substitute this great promise of God for the comfort of your bed. Do not merely substitute this great promise of God by an NFL game. Church, God's way of doing church, God's way of building God's kingdom, God's way of proclaiming his name to the ends of the earth is going to be used through the church. That means you matter in the kingdom of the Lord. Your presence matters. That means your work matters. What you do the day after. Your schoolwork as a student matter. The changing of diaper matters. Because every single moment of obedience and living faithfully as a body of Christ matter. Because this is how God is going to live, um, going to use the church to testify to Resurrection Sunday. I recently officiated a wedding. Um, and you know how it is. During a wedding, 
And uh, being in part of the wedding and officiating wedding or attending wedding is a completely different story, right? When you are in the wedding, you're busy. You have a lot of work to do. You don't get any sleep, you don't get any food, people are coming up to you, talking to you, but you're attending the wedding, it's nice. You get to dress up, watch all the chaos, you know, just enjoy and say, ah, you know, I've done it, or I've been there, or you want it, right? Or you hope to meet somebody there, it's nice to attend it. Um, you know, especially when I officiate the wedding, I enjoy it too, because, you know, you go there, you get to see this couple, after long and long and long hours of marriage counseling, you finally they are there, and everyone's so happy. Beautiful day. I did a wedding, and it was this beautiful day. And as, the, as the, the wedding was about to come to a close, right before uh, I was to pronounce them husband and wife, I always, as my uh, college pastor always used to do this to me and to many couples at our church, I always make sure I bless the couples. And I look at, look at both of them and say, so-and-so and so-and-so, I pray. May, they, may this day be the worst day of your life. And they're like, what? You know? All the parents are like about to throw something at me. You're ruining us, you know? But it's a blessing because the day after ought to be much better than this celebration day, isn't it? The day after that should be a lot better than this celebration day. In fact, if the celebration itself is the best highlight of your day, then your marriage stinks, right? It should get better and better and better every single day after the great big celebration. Church, that's what Christ tells us. In Revelation 19, 6, the greater wedding is to come. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, for his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and purple. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true word of God. The celebration, the greatest celebration is yet to come. Our God who ascended, our Savior who ascended, is coming back. And to live in light of Resurrection Sunday is to live in anticipation of coming King in humble obedience to the word, in absolute surrender in your prayer, but standing together as a body of God, as a church, a testimony to the world. That's what it means to live in the light of the promise of Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Let's pray and let's, let's submit ourselves to the Lord. Father, we become... And we acknowledge that oftentimes the day after is a lot more difficult than the celebration itself. Lord, sometimes we deceive ourselves and say that this big light of celebration is all that we got. And our daily life doesn't really have anything to do with a celebration on Sunday. But Lord, we know that our lives are marked by what it means to live in light of this great truth. Our testimony of what it means to live in this world is often marked by what we really believe happened on this Resurrection Sunday. And as people that are marked by this great truth in our lives, teach us, Lord, not only to testify to this celebration of Resurrection Sunday, but to live in humble obedience to the Word, even when things are more difficult to obey than to live according to my way. But also, Lord, help us to live in absolute surrender, in helpless state, in crying out to our King, 
saying, I give up, Lord. There's nothing that I could do to make this better, but absolutely surrender to your care. But Lord, more than anything, we thank you that you have given us this community, a church, a body of Christ. May we never, never trade in this great promise of God for mere comfort. But may we hold on to desperately, clinging on to one another as you long for a coming king. Lord, we pray that this body will be a reflection of that and that we long for the king that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.